Great to have you with us this morning to see more faces coming back post-COVID, many of you recovering, some are still watching online. I want to give special greeting to Richard and Patty Wilson again this morning. He came in and uh, he and Patty talked with me this week. He may be able to be back with us uh, again. Greetings, Alan and Terry, after that long drive out to uh, Wyoming, Tom Chrisman, others, I'm not going to mention them all, but glad to have you with us online uh, this morning. I'm particularly delighted to look out and see actual faces, more of you. This is my family, my church family, to everyone here who is a genuine believer. We will spend an eternity together, so we ought to get along with one another now. <laughs> At least we'll work on it. Last Lord's Day, we uh, actually two weeks ago, we began a study of the gospel according to Matthew. And last week I gave you a tentative outline of Matthew's uh, gospel. Outlines of the Gospel of Matthew, if you look in introductions, they, they vary. No single outline is absolutely definitive. They're intended to give us a handle on the contents. It's 28 chapters, so you're not lost. Uh, as, as you, How does this whole thing fit together? So that was the purpose of doing that, to get the big picture, to reflect its main theme and, and sub-themes. Uh, when I was at, at Dallas, the Bible Exposition Department, at least, required all of its doctoral students uh, to uh, be able to know a basic outline of each one of the books and think through it. And they kept telling us, if you want to pass your oral exams, you better be able to, to, uh, to do this. But uh, the, the ultimate goal really is to pray this prayer, Lord... We seek to master your holy scriptures, but our desire is that while we seek to master your word, the master, the triune God of heaven above, would master us, enlighten our understanding of him, bring our rebellious wills into submission and into harmony with his will and in conformity to the image of his own dear son. We must know the contents of the Bible. We must know biblical doctrine. We must know sound theology. You will not mature in the Christian faith without it. But sound doctrine is not an end in and of itself. May our Lord keep us from dead orthodoxy. Through his divine revelation, we seek to know in our lives the true God of heaven, and to love him with all our soul, heart, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Read and meditate on this book. Believe and obey its truths. I rechecked the website this week, hogwartsprofessor.com. It, it keeps updates on the stats on readers and non-readers in general in the United States. So here's the latest stats. 25% of Americans over the age of 18 don't read any books at all. 
33% of high school graduates never read another book the rest of their lives. But here's the one that's most shocking to me. 42% of college grads never read another book after college. The percent of Americans who report not reading any books in the past 12 months is higher today than it was nearly a decade ago. I, I, I beg you, my fellow believers, read this book. I can't tell you how much to read every day, but read this book. There's none like it. You cannot progress in your Christian life without paying attention to God and his word. Let us pray. Lord, we pray this morning that our love may abound. It may overflow its banks still more and more in real knowledge and discernment, spiritual depth of understanding, so that we might approve not merely good things, but we might approve the excellence, so that we might be sincere no hidden false motives, and blameless, without offense to you, until others, until the day of Christ, because we've come to be filled with the fruits of righteousness through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to the glory and praise of God our Father. So we pray that this morning. Lord, work in the heart and life of each one of us. Help us to grow in truth and grace, to love our God, as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew, increase our understanding, our appreciation of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and may we be fully committed disciples of him. In Jesus' name, amen. We looked at the major theme of Matthew, Behold the Promised Messiah, Jesus, the one who saves his people from their sins. We saw those bookends. I almost reached my arm out. My wounded wing is getting better, but um, if I stretch it out too far. So I'll do this. Bookend here, bookend there. And bookends around the Gospel of Matthew, those words, Jesus, the one who saves his people from their sins, and Emmanuel, and you come down to the end, and there's, Jesus, who has all authority, and he's with us, lo, to the end of the age. So you have those. But how do you go from the beginning there to Jesus having full authority? That's basically what Matthew does. And I told you there are five major discourses or blocks of teaching in Matthew, and each one of those has a key transitional element out of that block of teaching. So when you put narrative discourse, narrative discourse together, you pretty much have the Gospel of Matthew, thrown an introduction and a conclusion uh, onto it. Uh, and it'll look something like that. And key theme in each one of those is the king and the kingdom of heaven. Now this morning, we're going to look at uh, the first part of the introduction to Matthew. If, if you'll go from 1-1, one, one, jump down to 2-23, uh, I take the introduction is 
the first two chapters, and the reason for that is because when we begin in chapter 3, verse 1, all the Gospels will have this, the beginning of John, uh, he's often called the, baptize, the Baptist, but he's not a Baptist in the current sense of the word. It, the bap, he, it's a verb. It means John, the one who baptizes. Uh, he, he's the baptizer. And so he's preparatory for the ministry of the Messiah. He runs the forerunner. So in 3.1, I take that's the beginning of the, of the narrative of Jesus. And then when we come down to five, now we have that first major block of teaching, the discourse. So one and two are the introduction, and I take it they fit together this way. Uh, the first seven verses are the Abrahamic and Davidic ancestry of Jesus. Then we'll have the supernatural birth of Jesus, the Messiah. And, and think about this. God supernaturally directed the parents of Jesus to protect him, to go down to Egypt, when to come back. All of this is directed so that eventually the Son of Man who came to give his life as a ransom for sinners, at that precise time, he will die upon a cross, pay the penalty for guilty sinners, and be raised on the third day, 40 days later, ascend to heaven, and we are waiting for his glorious return. So that's kind of the, the uh, way I put uh, uh, that together. Now this morning, we're only going to examine the first 17 verses, and we'll reflect on the opening genealogy. This genealogy, along with the one in Luke 3, are probably the most neglected passages in the New Testament for most readers. Of all the passages in Matthew, this genealogy is certainly the most neglected. Seldom do we read it, or we just kind of scan through the names, um, and even less do preachers preach on it. One of the most delightful exceptions this week was I pulled up Alistair Begg to see if he preached on it. And you know what he did? He did a Christmas sermon on, on, on Matthew 1, 1 through 17. I thought, well, that, yeah, that's an appropriate Christmas sermon. Um, most of us feel a degree of uh, compassion for Jerry, who had to lead all, read all those uh, names this morning and, and were... And, you're thankful your name wasn't on the scripture reader list, man, that you would have had to read all of those uh, names. Um, but, but why begin with a genealogy? Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, begins right there. And then right into the, fore, the ministry of the forerunner, Luke, he carefully researched, examined eyewitnesses, looked at written uh, resources so that the most excellent Theophilus would have certainty about the truths contained in it and us as well. Uh, Luke, he puts his genealogy later um, in, in his gospel between the baptism and the temptation account and goes from Joseph to Adam, the son of God. And there's a reason for that when the second uh, uh, 
Adam, or the last Adam, really, is being tempted there, and he puts that in there for that reason. John, in the beginning, he puts the full deity right up front for Jesus Christ in the first 18 verses. He goes back to the very beginning, and then verse 18. This Jesus Christ, this God in the flesh, you want to know what God is like? You look to him. You look to him. But Matthew opens with a genealogy, and some of us go, give me a cup of coffee or else I'm taking a nap when I have to read this genealogy. Websites like Ancestry.com appeal to a people who say, you know, I'd like to know where I come from, and and I want to know, maybe I'm connected to great heroic ancestors and interesting places. Their webpage reads, Ancestry.com helps you understand your genealogy. A family tree takes you back generations. The world's largest collection of online family history makes it possible. Ancestry DNA gives you much more than just the places you're from. And it goes on and on. Discover where your family is from without even leaving your living room. Starts at $99, goes up to $199, and and then uh, uh, from there. Um, now, most of you native Texans, you don't say, oh, I hope my ancestry somehow goes back to Chicago and a corrupt politician. Amen, brother. Anybody else here from Chicago besides me? Yeah, there, see, even willing to admit it. I, that, there's a good friend uh, back there. Thank you. Yes. Um, Well, here's a genealogy that you will not find on Ancestry.com, and this genealogy is vastly more important than any other genealogy in the history of mankind. It's part of God-breathed scripture. It's intended to make sinners wise for salvation and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Matthew is making clear that you cannot understand the arrival of Jesus unless you see him in the grand scheme of God's revelation. Oh, some think there is no grand scheme. We came from nothing, and when we die, that's it. They have a closed mindset to God and his words. But this genealogy says you better reconsider that. You better rethink about that. Um, The historical fall into sin requires a divine Deliverer from sin. We cannot save ourselves no matter how hard we try. And the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant here remind us, go back to the Hebrew Scriptures to find the connection of promise and fulfillment, and in this sense, the fulfillment in Jesus, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Messiah. Jesus doesn't arise from nowhere. And when he dies, the purpose he came into the world, that's not the end. So Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham. Now, they kept lists. Genealogies were important. The lists gave us the identity of people and the ancestral history of the Messiah. Messiah. And if the Jewish mind is going to be convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, then this ancestral history is crucial. This genealogy goes from Abraham to Joseph and Mary 
and covers three sets of 14 names, and we know next to nothing about some of these names. As a matter of fact, nine of the names in the last 14 only occur in its genealogy, nowhere else in uh, Scripture. And then the names are all men with the addition of five women, and that, that's intentional by Matthew. You have <coughs> Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. And instead of naming Bathsheba, he says the wife of Uriah. And then Mary. And, and all of that is to evoke in the mind certain memories of those who are familiar with Scripture. And then in, in the names of the kings, the rulers in the line of David, of Judah, some were ungodly men that are listed in this list who never had the fear of the Lord, who never trusted God. And when you see the summary of their lives, I think seven, there's 13 kings listed here. And how many good kings in Judah? Eight. So he doesn't even list them all. He lists six good kings and then seven ungodly kings in the line of uh, Judah. Even the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I, I still remember reading that. What uh, A Jewish person was asking a rabbi. I'm not making this up. It's in Harry Ironside's Random, random Reminiscences. And he says... Uh, what are, we, what are we going to do? We can't offer the blood sacrifices today. And he says, well, trust in the merits of the fathers. I go, wait a minute. I'm going to trust in the merit of Abraham who lied about his wife to save his own skin? How about Isaac? How about Jacob, Yaakov, the heel-grabbing deceiver? Are you going to trust in their merits? no. All point forward, all ultimately are imperfect, and we need a, a, a Savior. One commentator writes, Modern readers should beware of a tendency to dismiss the genealogies as a boring, irrelevant way to begin a book about Jesus. What we're looking at here is crucial material, crucial material. So, uh, we'll start with the, the opening title in 1-1. I hope you're looking there in your Bible. Now, most will translate this. Most translations will say, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that is a, that is a, a title, but there's a problem with translating it, The book of the genealogy. If you jump down to 118... And it'll say, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. The word translated birth is the very same word back in the book of the genealogy. I think there's a link, intentional, with Matthew. So probably better to translate it, the record of the origin of Jesus the Messiah. So 1-1 one, one is a title, not for the entire book as some take it, there's, there's no evidence that uh, uh, this particular label was a, an introdu a label for the entire book, but it does cover 
um, both the genealogy, one, two, and the birth uh, back. So I, I would say the opening here is the book of the, of the origin of Jesus, the Messiah. It includes both the genealogy and the supernatural birth from heaven. And we find four names here, Jesus, Christ, Son of David, and uh, Son of Abraham. We start with the first one. Matthew will tell us down in 121, when the instruction is given to Joseph to name it, you should... You're, Mary's going to bear a son. You shall name his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek form of the biblical name for Joshua, Yehoshua. It's a shortened form. And the verb Yasha was a common name among Jewish people. Um, and it's understood to mean this, Yahweh saves. Saves from what? He saves a particular people, his people. Who are his people? His people are the ones that confess their sins and ask to be saved. And he saves them from sin. The angel uh, who tells Joseph to name him alludes to Psalm 138, where Israel to, is there in the Psalms, Trust in Yahweh, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So, the first name is crucial. It occurs 171 times in the gospel. Think about when the irony of the name Jesus when we come down toward the end of this gospel. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus, read in there, the one who saves his people from their sins, into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. They put over his head the accusation written against them. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Jesus, who is going to save his people from their sins. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me and yield up this people? So every time we read that over and over again, we should be thinking it's his common name. It's the name his disciples addressed him, but this is the one who's going to save his people from their sins. There's a Peanuts cartoon. I don't know if you're fans of Peanuts, but I, I kind of like them. And uh, Lucy asked Charlie Brown, why are we put here on earth? Charlie replies, to make others happy. Lucy, being reflected, says, I don't think I'm making anyone very happy. But then again, no one is making me happy either. So she chimes out, screams at Charlie Brown, somebody's not doing his job. <laughs> well, Jesus didn't come on a mission to make us happy. He came to make us holy. He came to save his people from their sins. And that theme is right up front here in this introduction. Second word is, is Christ, Messiah. Now, the word's only going to be in John chapter 1. Remember, John is writing much later, and he's writing for a general audience. So when he uses that, that term, Simon, 
goes to his brother and it says, hey, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. So he's writing much later. But Matthew is writing primarily for Jews, so they get it. When they hear the word Christ, they know it's just merely the Greek equivalent for Meshiach, the Messiah. Later on in uh, Paul, um, Christ will become more uh, Jesus Christ. They, they put together um, as a title, but, but here at, at the beginning, we should be thinking Messiah. Both Christ, Greek, and its Hebrew equivalent, Mashiach, are related to the ceremony of anointing a king or priest uh, for in recognition of God's approval. Remember what uh, God told Samuel to do for David. You're, you're to anoint him. Now, I'm, I'm glad when um, we don't pour oil over the preacher's head or um, Dylan, watch out, we, you, you finish and... Um, we'll just recognize uh, someone for ministry. But in the Old Testament, the term can refer to a number of people anointed for some special function. Priests, kings, metaphorically to patriarchs. Even the pagan king Cyrus was called God's anointed. As early as the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, we find this parallel in Hebrew Poetry. Remember, the essence of Hebrew poetry is one line often in parallel with another one, and sometimes it's synonymous parallel, and she prays, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, his melech, and will exalt the horn of his anointed, his messiah. So you have king an anointed one, and then with the rise in Hebrew prophecies about the Messiah, Psalm 2, Psalm 105, others, Messiah became a term to designate a person who would represent the people of God and bring in the promised future reign of God on earth. And so when we go from the close of the Old Testament, it's often called the 400 silent years. But during that time period, with the oppressors upon them, God was using that time period to create in the people a fervor. We need the Messiah. They were right. They needed a Messiah. But they were wrong in merely seeing an earthly political ruler. So we have Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, and now he connects this with the son of uh, David. Here, here in particular, j just think, how long has it been since our Lord has departed and gone to heaven? Roughly. The, the, I don't have my hearing aids in or I'd get too much feedback, so somebody say it louder. How long has it been since the Lord on the Mount of Olives, went up to heaven, and he hasn't come back yet, roughly. 2,000 years. You told me I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have my hearing aids in. So, yes, 2,000 years. Now, think about the promise to Abraham 
and to David. How, how You go back in time, roughly when did Abraham live? 2100, 2200 B.C., somewhere around there. So 2,000 years, and, and where is this Messiah? Well, God's promises, though long delayed, had not been forgotten by Jews in the first century. And Matthew asserts that Jesus and his ministry are the fulfillment of God's covenantal promises now two millennial, or, or for him, two, yeah, two millennial old covenantal promises. And the first one that he reminds us is the son of David. And here, the messianic status of Jesus is expressed even more strongly. Turn, turn with your Bibles back to Second uh, Samuel chapter 7. Now, some of this is going to refer to David's immediate descendants and following descendants, one of them particular to Solomon. But there, remember, there is going to be a greater David, and the greater David is going to be the one who will fill this. So, um, David is offered to build a house for the Lord, and at first Nathan the prophet says, good, good idea. But God comes to Nathan the prophet and says, no, not a good idea. I take the initiative here in salvation and, and calling and, and my program. And you know what? Did I ask you to do that? Here's what I'm going to do for you. I will make for you a great name that ought to register a connection back to the Abrahamic promise like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people, Israel. I'll plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. That's part of the Davidic promise. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. I will give you rest from all your enemies. And moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, the word bayat here doesn't mean... Um, a, a physical reference. It's making reference to a dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, remember Acts, David, David finally did rest. He, he served his generation. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. So remember what a dynasty is? A dynasty is is biologically related. It's a family. How many dynasties after the split of Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, how many dynasties in the south with, Ju with Judah and Jerusalem? One, Davidic dynasty. Now you go to the north with Israel and the ten tribes, how many dynasties? Nine. The, the same line didn't continue because, because of sin. So I will establish his kingdom. Now, he shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there is Solomon, but it goes beyond Solomon. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod 
of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, true of Solomon, true all those who sin. But my steadfast love, my chesed, will not depart from me as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So when right up front, the son the son of David, were, were, and it became a messianic title, this term, son of David. Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah 11, 1, the tree of David now whacked off, cut off in the day of Isaiah so that only a stump remained was sprouting a new branch. A shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength. So if, if, if he's going to be the Messiah, he has to, and he's going to be in alignment with the Hebrew scriptures, he has to be a son of David. And if he's a son of David, of course he has to be a son of Abraham. Um, but it's more than just simply being a son of of Abraham. Now we go back to Genesis chapter 12. So who, who were Abraham's Abram at that time? Not uh, just an exalted father. Um, who were his parents? They were worshipers of the sun moon. They were idolaters. And God sovereignly called Abraham and among the things that he promised in the Abrahamic covenant was this. Not only uh, a land, not only a blessing to Abraham and to his descendants, but also through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Wow, it's right there in the Abrahamic covenant. So then you come down, um, I'll, I'll skip the one. In terms of Genesis, right, right there, remember when God is about to destroy uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and he goes to Abraham and he says, should I hide from Abraham what's going to take place since through him all nations shall be blessed? You know how they're going to be blessed? Because Abraham is supposed to teach his children the commands of the Lord and to obey them. But particularly clear... In Genesis 22 and verse 18, God promises that through Abraham all nations would be blessed. So with this reference, it's already pre preparing here in this title for Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Jesus Messiah came in fulfillment of the kingdom promises to David and of the Gentile blessings to Abraham. I'm looking at my time. i got to speed it up here. So um, I'm not going to be able to do all the names in here. I'll just, I'll just kind of summarize and let you go back and you go, well, we were supposed to read this. Let me see if I can get anything thing out of it. The genealogy then is in 2 through 17 and has three turning points. It's easy to remember. I think that's intentional by Matthew. And so you have two names and one event. You have Abraham, David, 
and the Babylonian captivity or the exile. And he's going to take us down to Jeconiah. He's also known as Jehoiachin. Um, in, in, and he's going to repeat him for a reason I hope they get to in a minute. And then there is the summary in 117 that talks about three sets of 14s. Now, any Jewish person, even us Gentiles, who are familiar with the Bible and the flow of history, you read this list, it's not exhaustive. It's not comprehensive. It doesn't list every person. If there were 19 kings in the Davidic line, you don't have 19 kings here. So that should give us a clue. When Matthew says in 117, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. He's, he's not being exhaustive. He is being selective, and his purpose is Christological. He is saying, if the Messiah, he has to have the right credentials according to the Old Testament Scripture. And let me tell you, his line is the right line, the right lineage. Um, so there are three divisions. You remember those three names. You may not have to, David, and or Abraham, David, and the exile. You got it. You don't even have to have repetitio mater studiorum. Repetition is the mother of learning. You, you hear it once, you should have it. What's the genealogy, how it's divided up? Abraham, David, and the exile. Now notice he goes in the reverse order then, when we start, he starts with Abraham, and he's going to work down forward. He's going to go from Abraham to David in 2 through 6, say. He's going to go David to the exile, 6b through 11. So the first part is really the rise. This is, this is the great part of the history. You come down to David, and after David, everything declines. And God had told him, if you disobey me, Deuteronomy, here's what's going to happen to you. God is faithful to bless, and God is faithful to his word to judge. So the exile came about. But he also had prophesied 70 years later they're going to come back. So you, you, we might be thinking, oh, no, what happened to the Davidic line? It ended. No. You either have a succession of kings going on forever to fulfill 2 Samuel 7, where you have one king who finally comes and rules forever. That's where we're pointed in the Messiah. So let me see what I can do briefly in, in the first section. So we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We know father, son, father, son. But Jerry read begat. It's, it's an older way. Usually that, that verb means the father of. He produced uh, the seed for this uh, this offspring. And then we come down, Jacob, how many sons did he have? This is, you could, 12, yes. I see, just seeing if you're still with me here. Good. 12 sons. So why single out Judah? I, I, I would suggest to you that he probably, you, you go to the end of Genesis 49 and 50, and there is Jacob on his deathbed. And he's giving a blessing to each one of the 12 sons of Israel. And he, he comes to uh, Judah, and he says, 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, some don't think that's a messianic prophecy. I do, and I think that's probably one of the reasons that why he includes uh, Judah. But, but think about Judah, and now we're going to have Perez and Zerah, the twins, and the name Tamar. Whoa, this would evoke a lot for anybody familiar with the Old Testament. Remember what, what happened with uh, Judah's first two sons? Um, Ur was first married to Tamar. And he was evil, so the Lord took him. And according to the Leverite law of marriage, the next son was supposed to raise up seed. I, I remember I was teaching a class one time at uh, TCS, and, and one of the young kids goes, what? He, she had to marry his brother. There's something wrong with that. I go, go back, Leverite marriage. And, and so the next one came along, and so... He gave him Onan, and Onan acted wickedly. Let's describe what he did, and he died. So the next son, Shelah's a little, Shelah was actually a male name, and he's a little young, and so he's, he's, he says, okay, I'll, I'll obey that when he grows up. But he doesn't. He goes, son number one, I lost him. Son number two, I'm not giving anybody Tamar anymore. And she's waiting, and he doesn't do it, so she says, okay, I'm going to take things into my own hand. Remember what she did? She dressed up like a prostitute. And he comes along, his staff in his hand and a signet ring, and he goes, uh, um, I want to sleep with, with you, this cultic prostitute. And uh, so what, what are you going to give me? So he gets his staff and his scepter, and, and uh, um, she's veiled. He, he sleeps with her. And later on, he learns that Tamar is pregnant. And he goes, Burn that ungodly woman. Boy, you talk about getting burned on your words. And she goes, okay, go tell him who the father of this child is. Take him this, this staff and this signet ring. And he looks at it and he goes, whew, she is more righteous than I am. And so these names that are in here are intentional by Matthew. Judah and Tamar. This is in the line of the Messiah? You've got to be kidding me. And, and I think Matthew, as he's writing this, remember what he was before he became a believer? He was a despised tax collector. And he's saying, you know what? There's some other despised people in that line besides me. And then we go to Hezron and Ram and Aminadab and Nashon and Salmon. And then we come down to Rahab. And you'd have to go to Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. Remember? So the spies came in, and she said, yeah, I've, I've, I've heard about Yahweh, the Lord of the Hebrews, and I've heard about what he does. This is kind of scary. And she says, um, she feared the Lord, and so she hid the spies. And they said, okay, when we come to destroy Jericho, you and your family here on this city all are going to be saved. Now, we learn later on that she actually became a God-fearer associated with Israel. She married one of them. And, and guess what 
that produced. So you've got Tamar, an incestuous woman with Judah. You have Rahab, the pro Gentile prostitute from Jericho, and produces Boaz. And then you have Ruth. Remember what uh, Ruth was? What was her nationality? A Moabite. Where did the Moabs and the Ammonites come from? Came from Lot in his incestuous relationship with his two daughters. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking Matthew is, is putting his stamp on this. Yeah, people despise me, but by the grace of God, I'm writing this to you. And there's a whole, this is the triumph of grace. It's the triumph of grace when we read this. And Ruth wasn't, I mean, she came back. She, could, she didn't have to go with Naomi. She came back, and uh, she was not an immoral woman. Remember? Okay, go up there and lay at his feet, but there was no immorality, and so he would played uh, the role of the kinsman's redeemer, and they're married, and what do you have, Jesse? And you come down to David the king. So there's, there's the first part. Then we go to, from David to the exile. David was the father of Solomon. This is so striking. Don't name Bathsheba. Just call her the wife of Uriah. That is intentional. It's not so much a mark on Bathsheba. And some think she was a Gentile. I think her father was, uh, her grandfather was Ahithophel, if, if you look at uh, uh, the genealogy. So I think she was Jewish. But David was the father of Solomon. What happened to the first child between David and Bathsheba? The child died. And then God told him to name the next child that was born. Remember what God said his name was to be? It wasn't Solomon. Jedidiah, Yadidah, the one beloved by God. You mean out of that relationship? Yep, yep, here's grace, more grace all over here. And David, a man after God's own heart, committed adultery. Had her, had her husband one of his famous mighty fighting men killed. And I read Psalm 51, and I get a new, fresh sense of David's repentance that you didn't find from Saul. And he had to suffer the consequences, but that was so striking when uh, the, the sword is not going to depart from your house. So here it is, and here comes Absalom up into takeover uh, the city, David's fleeing, and you see him going barefoot down all over the Kidron, up the Mount of Olives. He's heading down to the Jordan. He's barefoot, and he says, maybe God, let God do what is good in his sight. Namely, I deserve what I'm getting, but God, be merciful to me. So, so there it is. And then you come down, and uh, 19 kings... Uh, starting with Rehoboam all the way down to Jeconiah. It doesn't list them all. Um, eight were good. Actually, six were pretty good. Two, it says they, they 
did what was right in the sight of the Lord until the end of their life, and then they did what was evil. So two of them are pretty mixed. But notice between Joram and Uzziah, he doesn't list three kings, Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. Now, we ought to get that because there were 19 kings, but it, that, again, reminds us that this is a selective list. It isn't all the genealogies. It's these particular genealogies that he has listed. And then God sent prophets. No, no, repent, turn, judgment's coming, and they despised the word of the Lord. And so judgment fell. And Jeconiah, remember there were three, actually three deportations. The one with Jeconiah that goes off was the one where Ezekiel was taken captive to Babylon. But then we have Jeconiah at the end there, and I take that was probably through Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's influence. I got the timing right. Nebuchadnezzar had died, and then Jeconiah um, was, he, he died in exile, but they treated him kindly. They took him out of prison, and they gave him food at, at the plate. So maybe that's why he uh, repeats him there. So we jump down then from the exile to Messiah. Now, the ones I have in yellow are this. You won't now, the names Zadok and Eliezer and, and Jacob, you'll find elsewhere in Scripture. But these particular nine people occur no one else, nowhere else in the Bible, just in this genealogy. And so some get a little critical and go, how did he know that? I go, well, he knew it two ways. There were a lot of genealogical lists. If, if you read... Um, Josephus, and he talks about some uh, as, as well. But this was critical. Plus, there's the Spirit of God. So he has nine people there that aren't listed, and I asked this question as I studied this. I don't know anything about them, but what were they like? Did they, did they take the fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge seriously? Were they fools? Did they did evil all the days of their life? Did they, did they try and do what God told uh, Abraham to do, to command your children to obey? I, I don't know. I, we're not told. The point is, then we're going to come. The, these are all in the line to the Messiah, and we come down to Joseph. Um, and then we're going to come down to Mary. Now, watch this. Jerry read all those begat, begat, begat. Come down to what one calls a surprising twist here. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom that is feminine in the Greek, and it refers to Mary, not to Joseph. We're already being set up for 118, the supernatural birth that's going to take place, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Um. Legally, Jesus stands in the line of David. Physically, he is born of a woman. I got more notes than... Let me, let me make one more comment about 14. Why 14? Um, it's the 14 generations, the 14 names. But when you come down to the last one, 
you'll only count 13. And so how do, how do you get 14? So you have skeptics that can go, Matthew made a mistake. And I'm going, seriously, a tax collector? If anybody ought to be able to count to 14, it would be Matthew the tax collector. So he didn't make a mistake. Now, there are different ways of handling that. Um, some will uh, include both Joseph and then Mary because that's, that's another um, uh, line. Um, but why number 14? Now, some do an elaborate thing to try and explain the number 14. If I, if I were to ask you, what is the number of completion? That one you should, seven. And that, that's fairly established. So some will say, well, um, to get to 14, it's two times seven, and there you get to 14, triple that, you get 42, et cetera, and it's some type of complex thing. I go, but that's not what he says. He doesn't say that. You can read that in there. Others, I think there is some legitimacy, although I'm not, uh, uh, I, I, I don't find, it's called gematria. It, it's letters in the Hebrew alphabet have numbers behind them. So the name for David, I better catch up, um, uh, David, so you have Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalaf, fourth one, and that stands for? Uh, six, and then you have Bob, which is four. You're repeated with David, which is six, and that gets 14. So maybe it's symbolic that David's name adds up to 14. Many conservative scholars take that particular view. My only concern is I, I don't know, I don't see a lot of that in the New Testament, and some of that is, is uh, excess. But it, it's clear the 14 are not comprehensive, exhaustive. Matthew is using a Christological list. Don't miss this person. There is promise of a Messiah, and there is fulfillment in only one person, only him. As a matter of fact, when you come down to 21, and it says, She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus for he, it's very emphatic there in the Greek text, he himself, no one else, will save his people from their sins. Let me conclude with a couple of uh, applications. i got to put my notes over here so I don't keep going on. Um, prophecy in Hebrew Scripture, the Messiah finds fulfillment in Jesus who saves his people from their sin. And God always accomplishes his purposes and fulfills his promises. Even sin and sinners cannot thwart the purposes of God. Abraham, a blessing for all nations. David, a kingdom that lasts forever. Exile, return. How's this going to come about? God is able to send the Messiah to a young woman named Mary, a virgin, in a supernatural birth. Matthew says that's how it's going to take place. And he does that, and he goes all the way down to the cross and beyond in resurrection. And God saves unrighteous sinners, not self-righteous. Everyone in there needed a Savior, even Mary herself and the great Magnificat in Luke. What does she call God? God, my Savior. 
The lineage here includes moral outcasts, godless kings, good sinners. When I say good sinners, I hope you understand what I mean by that. We're all depraved. We don't all demonstrate our depravity to the same degree. Male and female, Jew and Gentile, and then that surprising change begat to was born. So let me ask you, here's where the ultimate comes down to. Do you know this Christ? Do you know this Messiah? Do you know this Jesus? Do you know this son of David? Do you know this son of Abraham? If you do not, if you do not, Place your faith and trust in him while there's still time, or you will perish eternally. Jesus said it this way. If you do not believe that I am he, the messianic Christ, you will die in your sins. And to die in your sins has a horrible, horrible connotation. When we come down to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and to experience the second death. God doesn't reject any sinner that humbles himself and comes to him. Even the thief on the cross at the last moment says, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And for those of us who have trusted him, what are all those blocks of teaching going to do? At the end, what does Jesus say? Teach them all that I have commanded you. Well, there are some major blocks of teaching for discipleship. So as we work through the Gospel of Matthew, I have to ask myself, as I ask you, am I a disciple of Jesus Christ, a committed one? Do, do, do I do this? Father, thank you for sending the Messiah. Thank you that he came to save his people from their sin. Thank you, he is Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David. Here is a Messiah, a king, and a kingdom that will reign forever. We want to learn to love you more fully, to trust you, to obey you. May that be true as we work ourselves through this glorious gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.